Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather cook at home or eat out? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. everyone. Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbath. I'm joined today by Henry McKembe, who Henry and I have worked together since... Henry, when did I first hire you at DCI Group? Like 2006, 2007? Yeah, 2007, when I used to have more hair. <laughs> um, so Henry and I have known each other for a long time. Um, Henry, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Always a pleasure catching up and chatting with you. I know. We should have been doing this over beers. I need to figure out how to do that. I just taped an episode of The Circus that aired on Sunday, and it was the first one that I got to do where I was at a bar in the basement of Barrel with Mark McKinnon, and the guest host was Jordan Klepper. And so we had beers while I talked about all things that happened at Facebook. I heard your first episode with Crystal, too, and I was just like, if you, Crystal, Adam, and a couple of other people at a bar talking about some of these topics, it would make a very fun and lively conversation. I have been thinking about needing to perhaps do like a live episode of the podcast where I'll just, we'll do a stage, you know, interview and then we'll all have drinks. But well, if anybody is listening and wants to sponsor something like that, please reach out. I'd love to do it. It has a lot of potential. (laughs) It does have a lot of potential, especially with the next year that's coming up. Well, Henry, before we jump into our topic du jour, we got to do the fun trade-off question. So I know you love to cook, but I know you love to eat out. Which one would you rather do? Ooh, that is, that is, that is a hard one. Um, I'm going to say cook, I think, because especially when the kids are around, it's a good activity to get the whole family involved. And especially when I smoke something, it usually tends out to be like a, a, a all day affair. So I think I'm going to choose uh, cooking in, even though like I think eating out um, at some of the restaurants around here are pretty good. Um, but, but I think cooking just because... Yeah, it becomes a family affair and the whole thing. So it's always a good experience with the kids. Very cool. Well, let's start off. We shared a little bit about the background of how you and I met. But why don't for our listeners who might not be familiar with you share a bit about your career? Yeah. Um, again, thank you for having me. Uh, Henry McKembe, uh, CEO of uh, Do Big Things. I started out as a programmer um, out of college and I shifted over to digital advocacy at around 2007, um, 2007, uh, you know, with Be the Change and then went over to work for you for a bit <laughs> over at DCI Group. Uh, still one of my best bosses that I've had throughout my careers. I did not pay him. Yeah, she did, she did not pay me for that, as a matter of fact. Then I went to the, the great folks over at Blue State Digital for a bit. Um, I like to, you know, because I work in a progressive space, do like to say that I did not work on the Obama 08 campaigns. <laughs> Just don't want to take any credit for that. And then uh, spent about eight eight years at Beekeeper Group as a partner, which is a public affairs shop uh, here in DC. Um, went to LPS campaign after that for, for a bit. And now I'm at um, uh, Do Big Things. So been in the space for the better part of two decades. I really focus on kind of digital advocacy, to storytelling, um, and, and all of those stuff. So yeah, so that's kind of the perspective I bring to this conversation. Very cool. And one of the things I like, I like many things about you, but you know, we've been involved in this for a long time, which for better or for worse, of sort of the beginning of the internet. And we've seen a lot of changes over the last 20 years. And I'm curious if you could just share a bit about your thoughts of how you've seen this field evolve from those early days when we were all still just trying to figure out what you know, these social media platforms were to today where now we're trying to figure out AI tools. Yeah, I think it's it's been quite a big shift, like, right? Um, I mentioned LPS uh, before because um, one of the biggest thing out of 08 was like, I want to do what Obama did. And, and I firmly believe that like local candidates could have the same impact that Obama did in kind of their district. And that's why I, I started LPS, which was, you know, stands for local <laughs> uh, local politics. And and so I think the biggest shift I've seen is, is kind of what I was hoping from that, which has been a uh, democratization of the tools, like, right? And so you don't have to just be a presidential to create content that is moving, that is um, authentic, and that can relate to people. Um, so I think, you know, you don't have to have an Obama-like structure to create good content and to move folks around. So I think the really the, the democratization of the content creation, right, has been a huge, huge, huge part of it. And I'd also the targeting on the advertising side, like, right, we were running some um, local elections in America. Maryland last cycle, and even this cycle, and even today in Virginia, actually, we're able to run TV ads 
obviously it's connected TV, but we're able to run TV ad for really local candidates, something that when we got started was almost impossible to think of, right? So the ability to target, to create content and then target that content to the right audience at a decent cost, and I think one of the biggest shift that, that I've seen in, in our space, obviously AI is coming up and how do you integrate that into campaign, I think is something that is also interesting. Yeah, the connected TV part is something that I don't think we talk enough about because everyone's so focused on the targeting capability of the social media platforms, which definitely exists. But you also have the ability to really target people now based upon their smart TVs or other tools and stuff that they they might have. And I don't hear a lot of people wondering where the transparency tools are for that to be able to understand what ads different candidates are running to different people. Like you said, in Virginia, like I've gotten all sorts of ads over the weekend when I had the football games on. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I think the transparency tools um, on that side, I think, will come like, right. I think you have folks like like at impact who are doing it. Um, you have um, a couple of the people who are, who are doing that stuff. I think as more and more people use that, I think the transparency tool will come. I do think one thing that we must avoid is the ad hoc policy on a state by state level, right? Because I think that creates confusion for both the folks that are running and then the folks like us who are helping folks running. So I think like Washington and Maryland come to mind when it comes to basically um, data privacy and transparency on that front. So I think uh, the patch set of rules that currently exist in that space is, I think, something that we all need to kind of think about, right? But it's definitely not the way forward. <laughs> well, and sorry, this question wasn't on our my pre-proof list, but you brought up a really good point. How confusing must it be for you all and hard to navigate? You're navigating a bunch of different state laws. You're navigating a bunch of different platform rules that are not, that are all a little bit different. You're navigating these Supreme Court cases, that you don't know how that they might come down. I don't know how much those might affect you or not. There's also just kind of the question of like public sentiment of, of using these tools and stuff like that. You've got pending FEC rulemaking on AI. Like it's got to be pretty challenging to kind of be like, I don't know if this is okay or not, but we're going to try to do our best by the different rules that are out there right now. And try to nav i mean that could be somebody's full-time job is just navigating all that different stuff yeah for sure and and it is definitely as you said a patchwork of stuff right um but i am thankful for lawyers like right i mean we're in dc <laughs> there's a lot of little lawyers there's a lot of a lot of smart lawyers and and we have a few on retainers and really that's what it comes down to right i think um again it is a patchwork of stuff it is very difficult to deal with but i think between having a close relationship with the um with kind of like the vendors right and understanding what their capabilities are what they're actually doing um having lawyers on retainer and then also having um our clients lawyers on retainer um i think really helps us to really have those conversation at the front end right and then understanding what the capabilities are and oftentimes i think it also you know, if you think about the audience first, right, you navigate away from some of those troubles because I think some of those troubles come from trying to be everywhere. But really, if you think about where is my audience and what is what am I trying to tell them, then you kind of start with an audience and then you realize that maybe that audience isn't in as many places as, as you are, right? Because again, we're not talking about a presidential campaign in most cases, like, right, we're talking about either, you know, congressional or most people have a very finite geography to deal with, like, right? And and so from, from that perspective, you know, if you think about the audience, and you think about who you're trying to move, then there are laws or platforms that you could just ignore based on kind of like your target audience. You should not be targeting everybody everywhere. <laughs> no, no. Um, as, as much as some people think that that might be the solution to our, our some of our problems. I agree with you on that one. So looking ahead, we're, we're in for, we are already seeing a very unique 2024 race and we're going to be going into the primaries here soon. You mentioned Virginia's happening. Virginia, Kentucky, Jersey? And then Louisiana, I believe. Yeah. So by the time this airs, those elections will have just happened because this will come out on Thursday. But then we're going into a huge 2024 cycle. Um, and what is it that you're watching for, particularly on the digital space of what people might see when it comes to how digital is being used in some of these campaigns? 
Yeah, for 2024, I think there's several things that is interesting in the 2024 cycle, right? I think number one, you have many more consultants, like, right, especially on the digital front than they used to be. And a lot of these consultants are really good, like, right, because, you know, you, so you have the big guys, but then you have a plethora of new um, consulting shops that are going there. And a lot of them are also um, people of color who are finally leading in that space or so telling stories in a different way. So one of the things I'm really looking for in 2024 is do candidates and PAC really take advantage of a different style of storytelling to reach these audiences, right? Because I think um, that's going to be very interesting in a very crowded kind of um, uh, media space, right? The second thing I'm looking for is the role of influencers. Like, right, I think it's something that we've talked about um, going back a couple of years now. So like, can influencer actually help um, candidates, uh, you know, tell the story in a different way about very important issues, like, right, what type of relationship do candidates and campaigns have with those folks and how authentic does that come through? And are there any any mess-ups <laughs> that come to light? Because, you know, surrogates and all. Um, so that's something. And then the last thing is really, I think, spending on advertising, right? I think we work in a digital space. We've talked about 10% of media budgets should be going to digital. But I think at this point, it should really be more, right? And, and how early do people get started? Because we all know that folks you know, after a certain while have their mind made up, right? And then you're just throwing money out there. So how early do folks really start on their advertising so they can tell a more in-depth narrative when it comes to some of these more complex issues, like, right? And I think it's something to see folks have learned from, from those perspectives. I think AI is interesting. A lot of folks are talking about AI. I don't think AI is going to play a huge part in the content generation aspect of things, like, right? I think you're going to have stories that pop up here and there, but I just don't think that they are far enough ahead for enough campaigns to take advantage of that in a meaningful way, right? Um, I think you have folks like Quiller who are talking about email fundraising. I think it's something to watch, certainly, right? Um, but I think in terms of content creation as a whole, it, it hasn't quite gotten to pass the first draft kind of move. So I don't know that people are kind of going to be taking too much advantage of that at this point. And I think those are kind of the things that, you know, I'm looking at. Obviously, like, as you mentioned, some of the state laws are going to come through because you have the state legislation <laughs> in early January to March, and they get really excited about a lot of things. Um, and, and we're in elections and, and are really an easy punching bag for some of those folks. So I think um, seeing what comes out of the next legislative sessions um, out of the state would also be interesting in how those impact um, the general more so than the primary, since we have a lot of early primaries, including California and March. Are there things that you're most worried about? I mean, a lot of what you're hearing in the press, right, is like, oh, my God, this will be the last human election. AI is destroying the world. I certainly don't subscribe to that particular one. I've got my little phrase. I've got a sticker for you when we see each other to panic responsibly. <laughs> nice, nice. Can I get I that? even bought the URL. So there's going to be a swag store coming everyone's way pretty soon. But I'm curious from like, as somebody that is working doing these campaigns, I oftentimes find that the concerns are not sometimes the same as those who are kind of on the outside looking in and, and hearing all this. So I'm curious from your perspective, like, are you worried about mis and disinformation? Are you worried about uh, foreign interference? You know, is there anything that you're concerned about? Yeah, this is interesting. I think, right. I think a lot of this stuff plays at the presidential level, right. And I think we need to remember that 99.9% .9 of election happens at the local level, right. And um, as much as I'd like to think that the Russians are interested in um, uh, American democracy, I don't know that they're going to be in um, uh, spending a lot of time on school board elections. <laughs> so I think we have to kind of separate the noise from what's actually happening. I think, uh, at least on the progressive sides, one of the things that I'm concerned about is actually staffing digital. Like, right, I think um, by digital operation becoming so big, we've actually become very sideload in terms of skill. Like, right, so your ad person does not no longer know how to write an email, no longer knows how to create a landing page. And so we've become very, very siloed in terms of skill set, right? But when you go down to one or two level down, you need to have people who have multiple skill set to help an election and help a candidate move along, right? So I actually think um, staffing is an issue on the digital side, like, right, um, there's a, again, proliferation of like skill set and platforms and all of that stuff, but who's actually keeping the candidate's story and kind of communication strategy in mind as and melding all of these platforms to tell a cohesive story. And I think we're having less and less of those folks. We have tons of folks who are smart on ads. We have tons of folks who are smart on email. We have tons of folks who are even smart on slides.
Slack and how to organize on Slack, right? And TikTok and Reddit and, and almost have like community specific talent. But then who's keeping all of that together to make sure that it creates a cohesive narrative? And I think that's something that's really concerning, especially again, not at the presidential level, not at the statewide, like those folks have enough budgets to like bring on teams of folks. But like when you're getting down to your tier two cons- um, congressional, your um, school board races, your sheriff races, your judge races, right? Um, who Who is keeping that story down? So I think staffing, for, at least on the Democratic side, is something that I'm worried about, right? Um, fundraising is something that I'm also concerned about, like, right, the money's coming later and later. We've seen that this cycle um, online fundraising is dropping both for nonprofit and political. So how do those folks make up those gaps? Like, right. Um, in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I think, um, I am concerned about violence, like, right. On, on some of the local races, I think school board races in particular have gone, like we're currently involved in some in Jersey. They're just, they're just nuts. Like, right. And they get so little attention that like, okay, how do we, how do we bring that up? Like, right. Without saying that, democracies over because there are concerns there, right? Especially as some of those local races um, where folks know each other and have to live in those communities, no matter what the outcome of the election is, right? And and some of those passions are really, um, are, are, some of the folks at the national level are fanning the flames, like, right? Uh, forgetting that these folks have to then, after the election, they live in that community, um, um, good or for real. So, so I think those are some of the things that I am concerned about, but like, Disinformation is, I think, something to be concerned about, right? But I think we now have the tools to fight disinformation. We know we literally have studies about what changed minds, like right scientific, replicable studies about that. The question is, are folks going to invest into that early enough in those response mechanisms for that to be effective, right? And and I think those are some of the conversations that we should be having that we're not having. That's kind of you know we need to not fight the last fight, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, which we do every election cycle. But I think um, folks are not looking forward enough to some of these some of these things. So those are my concern. I know none of it is sexy. No, no, no. But I think you make a really fantastic point. I mean, you made multiple ones, but like particularly the local versus presidential, especially given how ad impact has shown, or at least they're predicting that a vast majority of the ad spending for this cycle will actually be pushed be by down ballot races, not necessarily by the presidential. Now there'll be a lot of money in the presidential too but that is definitely a trend i think that we should we should be watching a lot more of well henry i thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and hopefully i can have you back again always a pleasure man i'll see you soon Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Impossible Tradeoffs. I am super excited for our next guest, uh, Daniel Kreese. And I have known each other probably since, what would you say, the 2008 campaign? Or maybe it was even sooner when I was still at the RNC. But Daniel is a professor at the University of North Carolina. I'll let him share a bit more about his background and who has been paying attention to how tech has been used in politics for a very long period of time. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so when was it? I can't remember the first time... You might have reached out to me to be like, what in the world are you doing at this political party? Yeah, I feel like it was probably around 2007, 2008. Um, and then I also remember when we were hanging out at like an early Stanford event um, with pretty much everyone who had been doing digital work at all was were all together in one room because the field was so small. Uh, at that moment. Wasn't that, I think that was Nate Priscilli's thing right after the 2012 election? Or do you think it was sooner than that? I think there was even another one that was earlier when I was a PhD student. That might have been like 2010 or something. Oh, yeah, that's possible for sure. So before we jump into it, we just jumped right down memory lane. Why don't you share yeah. folks a little bit about what your your background is and your focus of study and all of all of that good stuff? Sure. So, um, yeah, I got my start um, right around the time that you did. Really, it all started with the 2003, 2004 uh, presidential cycle. I was actually a master's student in journalism at Stanford. And I was watching this Howard Dean phenomenon. Uh, And as somebody who had done some political work in New York City before deciding I wanted to be a journalist, I was just very intrigued. But I was like, how is the Internet changing the way people uh, raised money and knocked on doors and coordinated volunteers like those very like nuts and bolts of campaigns thing? So I kind of on a whim and as a 
uh, broke grad student, I connected with a bunch of Bay Area volunteers for Howard Dean, um, who were in Iowa on the ground in advance of the caucuses. Uh, and they were like, sure, come out. So I did. Uh, I flew into Nebraska. I drove a few hours. It was cold. Um, and I just hung out with them for like four or five days um, as they were on the trail and sort of watched as the Internet was getting um, overlain with the more retail politics that was happening on the ground. Um, long story short, I decided on the basis of that experience, I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to be an academic and study this more systematically um, and try to understand how it was changing parties and campaigning more generally. Uh, so I stayed on, did a Ph.D. at um, at Stanford, and then um, that became sort of the my first two books were really along the lines of how is the Internet and then social media changing campaigning. And then since 2016, it's pivoted a little bit more um, to take up questions of mis and disinformation and platforms. And I run a center here at UNC. Um, along with many other colleagues um, called the Center for Information Technology and Public Life. It's so funny. I was also a journalism major at UW-Madison, but instead of I, instead of going into journalism, decided to go into the campaigns <laughs> and do the digital campaigning versus observing it. So, And then 2003-2004 was my first, my first cycle, uh, too. And so, yeah, so 2007, I would have been, that was the, I was on the Giuliani campaign um, when he was still known as America's mayor. I always feel like I have to add that little <laughs> asterisk because yes. he's a very different yeah. person today than, than where he was then. But so, so you started studying this, but, and what made you to start, was, was that 07-08 cycle, the first one where you kind of started really reaching out to practitioners and trying to document this? Or did you do anything during the 06 midterms? No, 2007, 2008. Um, so that was my dissertation. Um, so at that moment, you know, I wanted I started. So my first book really just focused on the Democrats. Um, and in part, that was because Obama was such a phenomenon in 2007, 2008. And because I had a lot of act. I just went out to Reno, Nevada, and uh, I was on the ground with the campaign. And, um, you know, I had an opportunity to be like a precinct captain in San Francisco and then wrote about the experience of using Van and these new tools that they were working on. Um, and then it was for my the, the later book that looked and compared both parties that I then went back into time and um, spoke not only to you, but like people who are doing the Republican politics uh, work because I think you know part of the story that people sort of forget is just um, you know in the nineties um, is is like when the internet really was getting used in in political campaigns for the first time um, and there were amazing innovations on the Bush team uh, like for in two thousand for instance. But there's sort of like this prehistory that everyone forgets about, and they only focused on the Democratic side of the aisle for a little bit. Um, but there's been a lot of innovation on in this space on both sides that I think need to be duly acknowledged. You mentioned that there's been innovations on both sides of the aisle, and I'm kind of curious for you to dig into that a little bit more. Like, what stands out for you of Republicans versus D's? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I would point to sort of two moments. I mean, I think one... The Obama campaigns of 07, 08, and then the reelection bid, I think really showed the power of using the internet and social media platforms uh, for organizing. And, you know, the ways in which I think those teams uh, incorporated it into their campaign structures, they used it to coordinate people, they used it to get people excited working together towards a shared goal, um, the ways in which I think they really, um, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't run like, I think the big contrast with Dean is like Dean tried to run this internet campaign where there was this thing happening online. And then there was this totally divorced thing that was happening on the ground. And I think where the Obama team's innovations over both those cycles and really honed in the second was to say, these aren't two separate things. They need to be sort of integrated and working together. And I think compared to previous campaigns, like they pulled that off the best so that what was happening, you know, 
on social and sort of on the internet platforms they were building was advancing the goals in the field uh, in various ways. I think like, you know, if you want to talk about the Republican side of the aisle, I, I think you really have to look to that Trump campaign in 16 as breaking a bunch of molds in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, one, just simply the ways in which the president and, you know, then candidate Trump leveraged Twitter to set the entire media agenda uh, of the legacy press um, and also, you know, basically just shape what everyone was talking about at dinner tables, but also what was on the pages of the newspaper or uh, what was on the screens of local news. Um, I mean, I think that was a huge innovation uh, in terms of his and his ability to do that. Um, I think another thing, you know, that I've written about and um, was just, you know, relying on platform companies themselves and the talent and the data uh, and the services that they could bring to the table um, instead of building out a vast internal team to do things like, um, you know, your your digital advertising, I think, was was another uh, innovation that sort of came out of that team and, and that campaign uh, during that moment in time. Yes, I mean, those would be sort of the two of the things just in the campaign space I would point to. I'm curious what you would say to that question. I like to take it back to this wasn't specifically online, but it led to a lot of things that we do online right now, which is Republicans use of micro targeting back in 2002 and the 2003, yeah. 2004 era. Um, they were really innovative on that. I also yeah. felt that like what and again, I'm biased on this, but, you know, in 2004, we were doing a lot around web video like we had these, you know, these different websites. My favorite one was still FlipperCam.com because we had these dolphins following around John Kerry. Yeah. And it was a lot. It was a lot about getting earned media um, yeah. versus like what we what we see today. But it, I see it as kind of the precursor to a lot of the things I'm reading Taylor Lorenz's book right now, Extremely Online. Yeah which is kind of really interesting to think back to those those times before we had cuz that cycle we didn't have if Facebook had just been created February that year right you didn't have YouTube you didn't have Twitter you didn't have any of those those types of things um and so the the Bush campaign with Rove and Melman and all of them like i felt like they were very they were willing to take risks in a way that you didn't see other campaigns doing. And then you saw that shift to Democrats in the Obama campaign, but then like down ballot, like particularly with the rise of the tea party in 2010, in some of, in some of that, that work and what we were seeing online happening, um, happening with them, like kind of stood out to me. And then I agree with you with the Trump one. And like the, the key, the key theme throughout all of that is a, not a candidate and campaign leadership who were willing to take risks and do things differently than what they had done in the past. Yeah. And let me, I, let me, I'll plus one what you said too on micro targeting. Cause it's, it's funny. It became such a concern after the 2016 election, but like, I mean, the templates were there from Republican innovation in the eighties in things like direct mail. Uh, and the Republican party in general was so far ahead uh, of the Democrats throughout the 90s, 2000s on things like data, uh, just knowing your electorate, on speaking in direct ways, getting messages in front of key uh, key voters that I thought rolled over really well into that into the 04 reelection bid. Um, and, uh, certainly was there before as well and sort of became a basis of a, of a lot of democratic, uh, catch up. And I think your point is, is exactly right about like who was willing to take risks. Um, and in part, I think part of that was just, you know, Trump was coming with vastly different campaign resources and expertise and knowledge in 2016. So that team had so many more incentives to just step outside of existing sort of ways of doing things in that context, because they simply just didn't have the people. And that led to a much more freewheeling campaign than I think we'd ever seen before. Uh, and you're 100% right. I think the Bush team, like the Obama team, too, um, did do a lot more experimentation uh, as well. And that seems to fit new platforms because, you know, the genres of communication on them is more unsettled. Um, the speed and scale are, are things that we had never even seen before. So it sort of rewarded taking smart risks. 
Yeah. And I'm curious, you mentioned the platforms there. When did you start paying attention to what the platforms were doing vis-a-vis politics versus necessarily just what campaigns were doing? So this is a very distinct moment Um, in the after the primaries ended in 2016, uh, my colleague Shannon McGregor and I were interviewing the digital principles behind failed Republican bids. And one thing we just wanted to do, like we were just curious, like what what were they doing differently in 2016 than 2012, right? Because um, we already had all the 2012 data. We'd done all this interviewing. So we just started out like just asking people things in 2016. And we like really were just setting out to document campaign practice and how campaign practice had changed. But then it was in a set of conversations with um, people behind um, uh, Ramp Hall's bid uh, where uh, we were all of a sudden sort of like hearing about platforms in a much more active way than we had ever heard before. So going to ideation sessions at Google, uh, working closely with Google staff on what works online, um, talking to tech companies about like live streaming, etc. Um, and all of this really sort of disclosed that like, wow, there's this really big world that we don't know anything about uh, that's really fascinating and platforms seem to be really central to it. And what I say was surprising is because at that moment before that, platforms were kind of seen as these very neutral just channels. Like they're going to host everything. Campaigns will just buy ads and run them through there. Um, You know, Facebook will be a site for candidates to live stream things. Um, It was all like it was a very simplistic story. But then in actually talking to the people who were doing the work, it turned out like it was a much more active site um, where platforms were – uh, you know, providing best practices and helping facilitate ad buys and, um, you know, advising and taking this much more active role in presidential campaigning than we'd even imagined before. And that sort of then set us down the races of, well, what does what do platforms do and how do they do it? Uh, how do they moderate content? How do they think about these issues? How do they position themselves as electoral resources? Um, in ways that like just weren't on the agenda before that. And of course, like that was also, again, how we intersected. Yeah, well, and I actually, when I wrote, and I'll link to this in the show notes, when I wrote last year, my little history of tech and politics, um, it makes sense that that's when it kind of clicked for you all. But it was actually much earlier when some of these platforms, like more in that 07, 08 time period, when platforms like YouTube started hiring people specifically for politics. MySpace hired somebody specifically to handle politics. Um, and there was even that CNN YouTube debate and stuff like that. And so, and then I was hired at Facebook after 2010. So that was in February of 2011 for having folks having folks do that. And so it, it was just interesting to me that for you all, it was the 2016 campaign versus earlier, even though it was happening earlier. Yeah. And I'll say, I mean, one reason for this is, you know, a lot of a lot of political science has models of campaigns, for instance, that stem from a much earlier period. And we don't always have like a lot of interview based studies, for instance, um, where you can learn new things, discover new things about, you know, how politics works today. And at the same time, like we sort of had this model of campaigning that like the only actors that really mattered were campaigns as well as like interest groups that were aligned with them. So I, I think it just meant like these questions were just no one even thought to ask them, even though there were all these changes that were going ar- around and that were sort of in the world, but not really interrogated. So, yeah, I mean, if you even look at like, you know, the 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 second book I published stopped in 2014. And even that is like very campaign and party centric and not company centric at all. Um, And then like it was only with that shift that I think they had much more increasing visibility in 2016 that the rest of the world sort of stopped and and took note. So shifting now to you and I recently just released a piece um, where we kind of blended our two experiences together and everything, looking at how these platform policies have evolved, particularly since 
2016 um, and where we might be seeing that go today. Can you kind of share in your observation, like the differences of how of, of what changed after that election? Yeah. So I, I think there were sort of the twin events, really, that that got so much attention, I think, within the really the global press, policymakers and then partisan actors. And I think platforms themselves responded to this. And this was the Brexit vote um, that surprised a, a lot of people. And then the election of Donald Trump as sort of being an impactful election that surprised what people's expectations were. And often, I think, in those moments when your expectations are violated, that sort of becomes like the searching for what changed and and why did we see those outcomes and why were they surprising? And I think, you know, one thing that we wrote about a lot in our piece was, you know, a lot of people in media, um, mostly left politics in the academy, uh, as well, sort of pointed to and said, well, platforms must have, must be responsible uh, for these things. And we're swimming in the sea of mis and disinformation. Um, you had very high profile examples from that cycle. You had Cambridge Analytica um, playing a, a central role in the in the narratives of of why Britain left the European Union. You had um, stories of Russian propaganda and disinformation um, playing a central role in narratives uh, about why Donald Trump got elected. And platforms got blamed for those things, unfairly, we argue. Um, um, one of our many points of agreement. And uh, I think in response to those narratives and platforms being so central to that story that academics and journalists and policymakers on the left were telling, that then meant that platforms all of a sudden put into place a bunch of policy-oriented safeguards to strengthen their systems. Um, I would argue those are all really good things, um, things like ad transparency databases, advertising verification, stronger trust and safety, content moderation and policy guidelines. But I think all that was set into motion by these two elections producing unexpected outcomes, the stories that took root to explain those outcomes, and then a reaction by platforms uh, to the very public, very intense pressure on them to change their approach to elections. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that it was, and, and in all honesty, I think the, the narrative changed a bit too, as we went through 2017, because originally it was Macedonian teenagers who were spreading fake news and it yeah. wasn't necessarily Russian interference. The question of how Trump won was always there. Um, and was part of some of the questions and like needing more transparency around political ads and, you know, stuff like that. Like people started talking about that early on, but it was the fact checking work that like we launched, we Facebook launched that in December of 2016, like really quickly after that election. And that was more in response to that than it was foreign interference. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great context for sure. Yeah, um, it wasn't and like I people think... weren't thinking about that. I mean, they were. I mean, I think like people were thinking about this and addressing it um, during that election itself. I think that's a very fair point. Well, and I think well, what I mean by that though too is that no, like listen, we. I remember talking to some folks at the platform in September, being like, because the Economist had come out with that um, cover story, post truth politics. And I was like, this is going to be a real problem for the German and French elections that were happening in 2017. And I was just like, how are we going to handle that? And people are like, how would we tell what's true or false or something like that? Like that fact checking thing was really prompted by the U.S. election and what happened. But that doesn't mean the work wasn't being done. There was a threat intel team. There are spam teams. There's integrity teams. It's just that the problems ended up manifesting themselves in different ways than necessarily we had seen and the numbers weren't as like foreign interference the numbers weren't as huge as something that the platforms would normally do anything about and so there was that and then also i would say 
the societal, what people were okay with had also changed. So like one of the things we were worried about with even doing any sort of ad transparency was that we'd have a big backlash of advertisers who wouldn't want that information to be out there. And so, and we were questioning like between all advertisers, political advertisers, like all of that kind of stuff. And actually then when we took it out to people after the 2016 election, they, they understood more. Um, and I don't know if that would have been the reality if we had gone to advertisers early in 2016 or any time before that to do those types of things. So it was a huge, it was definitely a huge shift, but it's not like there was nothing happening at all. Yeah. And I, and I also want to, something you said in there, I think was, was really important, which is there was always this, this disconnect between what was actually happening empirically on a number of different levels and what that narrative or story was happening. And like we, you know, this is something we wrote about in our piece, right? Like Facebook, other platforms get blamed constantly for things like polarization, right? But like the evidence to actually support that is extremely thin, right? And it's it's not just that. It's like the scale of certain things, like disinformation, for instance, compared to all sorts of legitimate information, it's the, you know, the arguments that many people made for, you know, Trump won because of disinformation campaigns against certain voters uh, that were playing out online. You know, there, I mean, there's been whole books written about like how Russian disinformation, you know, changed the outcome of that election. Uh, but there's very little to zero evidence that support any of those claims as compared with like much bigger facts about that election, which is like partisanship, identity, who held office, uh, the state of the Republican Party. I mean, the electorate. I, I mean, all those things mattered far more. But the narrative took root that it was the platforms. Well, and I wonder, too, if like people were trying to find it was a lot to wrap their heads around. And it was a bit simpler to sort of be like, oh, okay. People are saying it's all the platforms. That seems easier for me to get my head wrapped around than all these other aspects of what is what is happening. And I feel like that is something that we continue to grapple with today because we've had this Facebook research come out around the 2020 election that has its own challenges because of the timing of what it could be, yeah. a lot of different yeah. things, but it's still unprecedented in terms of what was allowed. But I thought Casey Newton made a really great point when those first came out is like, and I'd be curious your thoughts about this as a, as a researcher of how we all experience our online environments is very personalized to each and every one of us. And we're trying to, when you do research, on these things, it's trying to extrapolate that to all of society. And so it can be very hard to show anything definitively one way or another. And I don't know if like if you've found the same challenges in trying to do research on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I th I think so the the you know, the the studies that came out of Facebook from the 2020 election are as close as we're going to get to being, you know, a gold standard of academic research. Um, in part because it was a it was a massive collaboration uh, between a private company and, and teams of researchers. Um, you know they they put experiments in the field, so right we're actually looking at real time ways that people were responding to political information. Um, they were manipulating things to see if people responded differently based on what they were seeing. Um, I mean, yeah, did was, you know, did Facebook sort of shape the research questions? And, you know, my, my colleague, Mike Wagner at Wisconsin has written about this. Um, you know, the, it, it wasn't exactly like a bunch of independent academics getting together to design a study with unlimited access. Right. Um, but it was still, I think, the best available set of studies that we have. The, the ironic thing is all what they found is exactly what maybe a century of political science would suggest, um, which is it's really hard to change people's minds that people's identities, their partisan identities, their racial and ethnic identities, um, you know, their geographic and, and other identities, religious that they might inhabit, are all really powerful 
at shaping not only their beliefs and their attitudes, but also leads them to reject information that runs counter to things that they wouldn't otherwise believe. Right. And and that is very much, I think, regardless of, yes, our experiences online are different. We all consume different types of information. Um, you know, we have increasingly personalized algorithms um, that, you know, shape the content that we see. Yes, on all those counts. Um, but it still comes back to that that base level fact that we don't walk into these situations of information environments being like easily molded to everything that we see and hear, et cetera, that there's lots of other factors that run in tandem to the online environments and experiences that we, um, you know, that, that we have and, and that we in, inhabit. And over time, information shapes who we are um, over longer timescales. And to me, I think that would be one of the biggest limitations of this study, right? Is that you're only looking at this in the context of one election cycle. Um, so play this out over the course of many years of daily political messages that people get. Um, would it look different? You'd probably see much more like reinforcement effects of certain things that people believe. You'd likely see more potentials for to pick up things like extremism uh, growing uh, based on information that that continues to come at people over time. But also all this is shaped, too, by what's going on in the political environment. Yeah. Like, let's take that to where we are today with the platforms, because we saw, you know, a lot of effort after 2016, 2018 midterms and the Brazil elections were sort of a a first testing ground for some of the platforms and what they were doing. And then 2020 was sort of the peak of of what the platforms were, were doing. And at the time, when we say platforms right now, we're still talking about the legacy platforms. We're talking about Facebook, Google, um, Twitter, Microsoft. Um, you know, we're not yet talking a lot about TikTok or a lot of the other platforms that, that we'll get to about what we're seeing today. Um, but that was sort of their peak, right? In terms of like all sorts of new policies, products, the Voter Information Center. And I'm wondering if you can kind of put into your words, because at least my perception of sort of our conversations and what I've read um, is definitely a mixed review of how you have felt that the platforms did in 2020. Yeah, I mean, so I think the most important piece about 2020, and frankly, one that we're losing, is that I think platforms, the main platforms that you just mentioned, much more fully embraced, I think, their necessary roles as democratic gatekeepers, which is a fancy way of saying that they much more clearly stepped into their responsibility to protect elections. And foremost, like why that matters is because a bedrock democratic principle is that we can have a peaceful transfer of power. Like you, you can lose an election and go on to contest the next one, right? And candidates must accept that. And I think the what we saw was platforms much more clearly embracing this idea that you shouldn't be able to undermine your own accountability at the ballot box. You shouldn't be able to undermine a peaceful transfer of power. And I mean, could they have all gone much further? Absolutely. Could it have been more coherent and less sort of bits and pieces, fits and starts? Absolutely. But I think the bigger picture is if you look in the aggregate, all the major ones pretty much embrace that role um, by doing things like, I mean, some of the stuff that we talked about, right? Like, so having clearer ad transparency. Um, uh, so citizens and third parties could evaluate paid messages that were being directed at voters. I think another piece of that was setting out clear boundaries around marking false information about processes and procedures of voting, or sometimes restricting that information from being uh, amplified or shared, some cases even taking down um, claims about a stolen election, for instance. Um, it could have been much more coherent. I would have liked to have seen it be much more coherent. But I think the important thing was the role, was embracing just this role that, like, they play this important role in helping to protect the public from those who would illegitimately and unfairly seek to hold on to political power. 
And so then the where we are today, talking a little bit about that, how have you seen the platforms make that shift then from 2020 to where we are today? Yeah, and I want to hear like your, I mean, maybe I would kick this to you first is like, what? how would you characterize the state of today? Well, I think first of all, we have, A, there's a lot more platforms. So you've got the legacy platforms, but you also have, and then you have Twitter slash X off in its own category. And then you have you have some of the newer platforms that are having to grapple with this these these challenges. Then you're seeing it right now with what's happening in Israel. You know, TikTok, you've got Telegram, you've got Discord, Twitch, you have all these Twitter clones, Blue Sky, uh, Post.News, Mastodon, uh, Pebble. It's just, it's a much more decentralized in environment. I also think that you've got a lot more podcasting that people are listening to. People are moving to streaming. Um, so there's just a lot more com- competition for for attention and the legacy platforms due to, I think, a combination of the political environment shifting, a lot of pressure coming from Republicans now around that they were doing too much on all of this with some of these Supreme Court cases making their way through. Um, and the fact that I think a lot of these platforms, at least for the U.S., are like the regulatory threats didn't come through in the U.S., that, that people were threatening that if we didn't do this. And so what was this all worth it for? Unfortunately, I agree with you about the like, we should have this role and we should play this role. But I fe- think they th- feel and you see this, I think when Adam Nassari is talking about threads, not focusing on politics and news, they're like, but when we do that, we just get smacked around no matter what. And Facebook's now seeing that by having less politics and news, morning consult polls are showing that their favorability is up with people. So if I'm a business person, I'm like, I don't want to touch this with the 10 foot pole. And so we're going to pull back on some of these efforts. They're still doing stuff. I I don't want people thinking that they're they're not, but they're pulling back a little bit and they're changing how they're approaching some of this content based uh, enforcement. And then you have newer platforms that are trying to do this for the first time. They're having to build these tools. They're they're having to build these policies and everything. And now they're really starting to put them to the test um, and they're going to miss stuff and they're going to have to keep evolving on that. Um, and so I think we're in this phase right now that it, it kind of reminds me going back to that history of the the mid 2000s where we had all these new platforms um, and we were trying to figure out what they were going to do. It's just now we're doing it through the lens of knowing the harm that they can do. We're not just seeing it through rose colored glasses. And it's just really hard to pinpoint exactly like I think it's hard to define what it means for these platforms to be doing enough because we probably will not know until well after Election Day in 2024. And I mean, all the election days for all the elections happening all around the globe. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that was that was beautifully summarized. And I, I've I done think it a few times. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, at, oh, one hundred and fifty percent. You know, and I, I, I guess I would sort of add just to that this idea of like what is lost when platforms no longer when they run from politics, right? Because I I think that threads, I think the threads decision, while I might understand it from a business perspective, I do think is damaging from like a healthy democracy perspective. Um, You know, I'm someone who thinks that like, we need to have robust political debates, we need to have political content um, that people see and also inadvertently encounter, even if they're not seeking it out. Because the world faces a lot of challenges. Um, And I think like, you know, to me, at least there's something we hadn't talked about, which is, you know, the very same platforms that got faulted for destroying democracy in in many people's claims um, were also the ones that fueled unprecedented global racial justice protests that drew attention to violations of equal life and liberty for black people in the United States at the hands of police. Uh, They were the same platforms that used high, that, that, you know, amplified highly emotional language to hold powerful men accountable uh, through the Me Too movement, Right. Like those things are important. And and what I fear is, is that if we move to a space where anything that smacks of being political becomes something platforms run from and try to de-emphasize, we also lose the most powerful vehicle for a good form of democratic accountability uh, 
and the most diverse, pluralistic public sphere in human history at the same time. I'm with you. I'm really struggling with this question. And I put it on threads and I've been getting a, a mixed response from people about whether or not it's right that the platform pull back on these things. Um, and it's just really unsettling for me because I'm worried that we're going into an election where people are not wild about the current two front runners, Trump and Biden, um, which could potentially lead to lethargic turnout on both sides of the aisle, which seeds a lot of this to the extremes. Um, and you're going to see less fundraising and um, and people just becoming, does this lead, what are the longer term unintended consequences? Does this lead to people being less civically involved because they're burnt out on the news too and, and everything else like that? Um, and so, and then you look at just what's happening in Congress right now. You can't get a Speaker of the House elected. And by the time hopefully people are listening to this, hopefully we have a Speaker of the House because we're going to do this a little later. Um, but I, this is why I kind of talk about that. I think, you know, looking forward, which is the kind of last question I want to ask you about. I do think this is sort of like we've got a kaleidoscope of approaches happening amongst all the platforms right now, how the campaigns are using all these different tools. We didn't even really touch on AI. Um, but I'm curious, like, what is what is it that you're watching for in particular over the next year? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think so, something that we've talked a lot about, right? Like, so, so one certainly is um, the platform rules that, that they put in place around things like disinformation, misin uh, misinformation um, that relates specifically to electoral processes. Um, another thing that we're watching closely is the weaponization, uh, really, of disinformation, um, you know, uh, at least in the U.S., um, but by many other candidates around the world, um, you know, that sort of looks to, uh, you know, set up in advance that an election isn't going to be free and fair or it's going to be stolen in a particular way or people's votes won't count. I mean, I think I think, you know, sort of tracking that and watching that, you know, I, my sense is I think from a campaign perspective, the challenge is going to be breaking through, um, as it kind of always is. And I think this goes back to the dynamic that you mentioned before, right? So they're stepping into a world where platforms are trying to de-emphasize political content. They're stepping into a world, at least at the presidential level, where the, you know, the candidates that are running, um, at least in the Democratic Party at the top of the ticket, um, well, well, both candidates are unpopular, but I think Joe Biden has a particular challenge in that, Trump drives media uh, in ways that gets noticed and gets attention. Um, and Biden has a harder time doing that, even as a sitting president, um, in part because, you know, he doesn't break norms in the same way and it's not considered as newsworthy. Um, so it's harder, I think, for Biden to break through. So the dynamics, at least that I'm looking at is, you know, um, how does that, you know, how does that Biden team partic in particular um leverage many different social media accounts and many different strategies to try to break through the noise and, and get the president's message out and the framing out, mostly to those voters that are, you know, disaffected, um, you know, that, that you described uh, so well before that, like, are just they're exhausted and burnt out by politics. Um, you know, let's let's face it, they have busy lives. They might be working two jobs to to make ends meet, caring for for families and uh, our you know our caregivers. You know they don't they just don't have a lot of time for politics, and you know they they kind of just say a pox on all their houses, right? Um, I think in the, in that scenario, like how does a, a candidate like Biden break through and get his message in front of uh, in front of voters, and what platforms they need to leverage in order to do that. Um, you know, and I think like the it's the Trump phenomenon will be interesting if presumably he's the Republican uh, nominee. Um, you know, it will be a, a question of how do they continue to leverage all of their social media in order to get the president's framing uh, in in front of voters. And I think one other thing that we haven't talked about, too, it's just also the brilliant way just tactically that Trump has used merchandise and used all those moments of scandal like indictments uh, to do things like raise money. And that's a platform story through and through, too. Um, and I think watching that very closely, because that's something we very rarely talk about um, uh, as well and sort of the, the power of driving things like fundraising 
um, and ways to, to leverage that. Uh, what are you watching? Well, globally, I don't think we talk enough about India. So like, I'm really trying to yeah. make sure, and that's part of the thing with this podcast, of bringing in folks from around the world to talk about those other elections and how those are going to, how the U, what happens in the U.S. impacts what happens in the rest of the world because candidates see what happens here and they, they copycat it, they follow it and, and sort of vice versa. So it's not, it's not, you know, we're not siloed just in what's happening here in the U.S. I'm very curious to see how the other platforms handle things. You know, right now with what we're seeing in Israel, according to the Atlantic Council Digital Forensics Research Lab, a lot of this stuff is happening on Telegram and then going to Twitter. And so what, what is that? going to look like? How is TikTok going to be used? Because candidates maybe don't want to be on TikTok, so they're using influencers. And the other thing I would say, too, is podcasting, audio, just people doing regular audio and podcasting. But I'm also very worried about deep fake audio um, and what that can look like. So there's a whole bunch of different things. But I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up here. Daniel, I will definitely have you back. Thank you so much for joining me. And I will put in links to our articles and a bunch of Daniel's other work and stuff like that in our show notes. But thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you.